um, you know, the difference between the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church, which is the two types of church that have been modeled for us in the book of Acts. Now, I'm not going to go reiterate everything that we've covered in our last two sessions. Get the CDs. They're worth getting. And we're going to go tonight and just begin with some of the traits of the characteristics of the Antioch church, which we genuinely believe that we are transitioning into. I'm going to share with you tonight one of the, the key things in the history of our church that I believe begin to initiate the transition and begin to help us to cross over. Because sometimes in church life you hear these words bandied about, transition, crossing over, and we don't really understand what does that stuff mean. You know, are we going to go somewhere? You know, but it can even mean, which, which in our case is, is, is very much the case, that the nature of your church can change. The nature of, your, of, of the characteristics of, of the church can change. You can transition from here to here, which is what has been happening to us. And um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about one of the, what I believe tonight was one of the key factors for that. No matter how far we go as a church and no matter how much I look back, you know, I can look back on this particular event as that was a very key moment in the life of our church. And I'm going to talk a little bit about it tonight. But the first characteristic we looked at was that the church is full of breakthrough believers. Okay? Believers that are not willing to be satisfied with the status quo that are in many churches. You know, you just be there. That's it. You know, same old, same old. Week after week after, month after month after, year after year. You know? It just kills you. And so breakthrough believers don't settle for that type of church existence. You know, they want to pioneer new moves of God. They're able to move under intense pressure without compromise, move in progressive revelation. They're under authority and they impact society. Then we talked about a strong spirit of evangelism. You know, being in the Antioch church, um, apostolic evangelism. You know, it's an integral part of the church. We look, looked at how that Philip was the New Testament pattern of the New Testament evangelist and how, you know, there's ability and power there to break open cities, to move in signs and wonders, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. You know, that's the New Testament pattern of an evangelist. You know, we talked about how he broke open Samaria, how he came out of an apostolic community. And, you know, we spoke about how Antioch churches break normal barriers and patterns that limit evangelism, you know. And uh, all people groups are targeted I was coming to church tonight and I seen three or four lads riding bikes, you know, from the knock area. And they're like those lads that give out the telegraphs at the traffic lights. Have you seen those guys? They're from maybe Albania, Romania. And I was just wondering, you know, are those guys being targeted? You know, we should maybe just stop and say to those guys, right, you want to come to a party? Where? In our church. Purely for all you guys next Thursday night and have a big party, get them in, give them a good feed, and just start telling them about Jesus Christ. Maybe there's somebody already doing it. Because, you know, one thing, that's one thing about our nation. Usually the church can, there's somebody working and reaching, you know. And so these are the things that we need to do. You know, we need to, as the Lord says, welcome the strangers that are in the land and try and reach them, you know. We talked about how Antioch churches, or type churches, are not void of apostolic input and how that the sending of Barnabas represents apostolic input from Jerusalem church. He was sent to Antioch. And Barnabas was an encourager. Apostolic input will always strengthen the local church. 
Barnabas represents encouragement, and lack of this will cause the church to remain weak and immature. We spoke about the honoring of sent ones, which enabled the church to partake of the grace on the sent one. So in other words, whatever you say somebody is, is what you can receive from them. You know, if you say somebody's nothing, guess what you're going to receive from them? Nothing. So how you view a person can determine how God can bless you through that person. Okay? In Jesus' name. We talked about Antioch churches moving in high levels of grace. In other words, grace being evident in these churches, an abundance of gifts, an abundance of spiritual gifts and ministry gifts. We come behind in no gift. That's what, that's what the Bible tells us. Uh, grace gives these churches the ability to do extraordinary things, you know? That the churches, these types of churches become a magnet for five-fold ministry gifts. There's an appeal, there's a draw to these types of places of Antioch churches. We also talk, talked about a structure being there to facilitate and to release. And uh, we used the example of how our own project in Africa, you know, has become a vehicle for people with a mission's heart to actually begin functioning in the church, you know. And uh, I had the good pleasure yesterday of, of being with Pastor Kenny. He's across in Northern Ireland. He came to Northern Ireland for his holidays, okay. He's down in Enniskillen. I could have thought of somewhere much more glamorous to go, but there you have it. Um, so he's come, and we had lunch with him yesterday, and, and Pastor Day and the kids, and he was telling me that he got a breakthrough with his church. The Hindu guy that he was leasing the building from has now offered to sell him the building. Amen. You know, so you know what I know? God's doing something with buildings at the minute. Huh? In Jesus' name. Yes, Lord, let it, let it be our turn, you know, soon. So we thank God for that. But we talked about how that um, I was telling him about, you know, the project. He was asking me. In fact, he has said he wants to go with me to Malawi, possibly November uh, and possibly um, April. Just see how it fits in a schedule. But, um, you know, can you imagine we're stirring up Africans to go back to Africa? <laughs> can you imagine? You know, because it's easy for those guys to come here and forget there because they had such a hard time there. You know, who can love Africa like the Africans? Huh? Who can love us like us? At the end of the day, you know, people come and they provoke us and they inspire us and they encourage us, but we got to live here. Hmm? And when they go back, guess what? We're still here. So we, we got to understand that. So I, talk, I spoke, spoke to him how that we've seen a, a genuine change in, in many realms of the church because we simply created a vehicle. God created a vehicle through the project. And it's been a wonderful vehicle because it has, it has uh, you know, it has stirred up, it has provoked, and it has even created its own anointing for increase and for growth, you know? We've been able to do that. It has not touched the church. Can you imagine in the year of a credit crunch? <laughs> in the year of uh, difficulties in many areas of the world, you know, we're continuing to press into Africa. Our building fund's growing. Our membership is growing. Huh? In Jesus' name. We said at the start of the year, we're believing this year to be the year of abundance. In Jesus' name. The year's not out yet. I'm telling you, it's only August. September's coming. But it's still only August, you know. And we have learned in this church that God has a habit. Sometimes people would say, a bad habit. God has no bad habits. He makes us wait. You know why he makes you wait? Oftentimes, patience. 
We always said, patience, Lord, now! No. You want patience? Wait. And we'll be talking about that even tonight, ministering to the Lord. It's a form of waiting on the Lord. We also spoke about the concept of team ministry that will always abound in Antioch churches. Paul and Barnabas established as a team. They were later released from Antioch. Five-fold team ministry will have a tremendous impact upon a church. Okay, where the five-fold arena is valued and honored. It will always impact the church. Jesus knew the value of team ministry. He sent them two by two. He initiated the concept of team. Okay, he sent out the 70. He sent out the 12. He understood that. Because why? He was the, 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 the high, he was the, the apostle of our faith. Jesus moved under an apostolic anointing. He moved under apostle anointing. He moved under a prophetic anointing. He moved under a teaching anointing. He moved under an evangelistic anointing. He had the whole lot. Hallelujah. And you know, he gave up as God, as, as God you know, he gave up as, as he emptied himself, the kenosis of Christ. He emptied himself. And the things he did, he did as a man anointed by what? The Spirit. Hallelujah. So, we spoke about there will be resident teams in these churches, but visiting teams will also be evident. And we shared about how even from the conception of this church, God has always sent teams here. And I used to wonder why. But now I know hindsight is a wonderful thing. Teams are matured within the church and sent to impact the nations. You know, what an apt song we're singing tonight. We speak to nations. That's an apt song for us, for a church of our nature. Because why? We will visit the nations. Huh? We'll do our bit. Other people are visiting the nations. But are you, our anointing, our corporate anointing is unique? There's only one highway of holiness church. It's unique. Huh? There's only one of you. There's only one of me. We're unique. Tell your neighbor, I'm unique. <laughs> You're unique. There's only one of you. Hallelujah. Thanks be to Jesus. Yeah? And so we talked about our experience of sending people to Pensacola, to Omaha, to Malawi. We've, we're functioning in that already, okay? At a level, it's going to increase. It's on the up. I'm telling you, there's a head of steam building. There's a head of steam building in Jesus' name. We spoke about corporate vision and purpose. We spoke about the Antioch church will always have the spirit of cooperation and unity. There will not be a jealous um, nature in that church, or people will not be intimidated by other gifts. It's not the nature of those churches to be like that. Okay? We spoke about five full ministry teams being evident in Antioch churches, apostolic teams, prophetic teams, teaching teams, pastoral, evangelistic teams, prayer teams, worship teams, deliverance teams. Okay? And then we moved on to characteristic number six. And this is where we're, we're, we're going to tail on tonight, or tail off and, and, and carry on tonight. Teaching. And how that Antioch was a teaching center. And these types of churches, Antioch churches, will always have a strong word base. In other words, the word of God will be evident there in that church. It will be given a high place. And it will, it will um, uh, the teaching office is a governmental office. First apostles, second prophets, thirdly what? Teachers. So it's part of the governmental office of, of God. It will have a, a place in these churches. Foundational principles will be taught as well as advanced truths. So you will have both, okay? There is a duplication we taught on Sunday of the teaching anointing in these churches. In other words, what does that mean? Those that are taught, who sit under that anointing, 
will usually often become teachers themselves. Okay? Because the anointing duplicates itself in people. You see? So those that are taught become what? Teachers. Because Antioch churches will be full of mature believers. Okay? Who are able to teach. Who are able to impart truths to others. Foundational truths. Advanced truths. Hallelujah. We also spoke about the teaching in Antioch churches as often on a high level. Antioch churches are conducive to the study of the Word of God. So there will be a heart in Antioch people and breakthrough believers for the Word of God. They love the Word of God. They'll be passionate about it. The atmosphere will be conducive to the Word of God. You know? And so we've seen that. There will be an atmosphere to instruct, educate, enlighten, to ground, to explain, to clarify, to interpret the Word of God. Okay, so that's the first six first characteristics. We're going to move on to number seven tonight. And we're going to look at this here, you know, because it's relevant. It's relevant in, in Antioch churches. And you know what else will always reside in an Antioch church? A strong spirit of benevolence. Say benevolence. Benevolence means giving. Okay? Now look at Acts 11 and verse 28 through 30, Robbie. If you put it up for the guys, let them have a look at it. So the Antioch churches are giving churches. Giving churches, you know? You know what that tells me? There must be non-giving churches. Huh? I told you, I've often told the testimony, I'm going to say it again tonight. It's dropped in my spirit about how I went to a non-subscribing church. Really, they can just put up non-giving. There was no carpet. The seats were ancient. The church was freezing. There was no heating. And I just was so, and there was a wedding taking place. And I thought to myself, my goodness, look at those church members. Go in every one of their houses. I bet you they've got carpet and heating and all the rest of it. So they do for their own house what they won't do for God's house. God's house should come first. Say amen. Okay? So, they're giving churches. Now, let's look at Acts 11, 28 through 30. What does it say? And there stood up one of them named Agabus. Okay? Agabus. There's a biblical name you don't hear too much. What's your name? Joshua. What's your name? Caleb. What's your name? Joseph. What do I call you? Agabus. No, they don't use that one. All right? And it says, and he signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all of the world. Okay? He's prophesying dearth. Huh? Prophet of doom, this boy. They're in the Bible. Which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Verse 29. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, look at this, determined to send relief Unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. All right, verse 30. It says, which also they did. See, how many people know you can determine to do something in your heart, but then the next stage of that is actually doing it? You know? I've often told the testimony about how we were flooded out, and a, pastor, a certain pastor said to me in the city, oh, believe you were flooded out, yeah. 16 inches of water, uh-huh. He says, the Lord told me to send you a thousand pound. Oh, yeah, but I didn't do it. And I didn't let him off a hook. I said, why not? He says, because the elders wouldn't have agreed with it. They wouldn't have liked it. 
I says, right, okay, you know. And as I left that office that day, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said to me, what makes him think? No, he said to me, but our church has lost something because of it. That was a big admission. She says, but our church has lost something. They allowed their church to lose something because of a thousand pounds, a thousand measly pounds. They allowed the fact the life of the church. And the Holy Spirit said to me as I left that office, what makes him think that his church is going to stop losing something until he does it? Well, God doesn't change his mind just because you don't obey. When God tells you to do something you don't do, it, he still expects you to do it. He didn't say, ah, well, he's not going to do it. We'll just change it. We'll shift the goalposts. That's not the way God works, you know? So determining to do something in your heart. I remember one time in this church, I had purposed in my, in my heart to give an offering to God. You know, I'd purposed it. And a couple or three or four weeks passed. And it wasn't that I wasn't going to do it. I just didn't get round to it. You know, I had to do certain things. I had to shift some funds and do it. I said, oh, Lord, you know, you know. And one night, I'll tell you something, I stood at this pulpit and in worship, God called me on it. And I was like, oh. I called Marty up before worship had finished. I said, tomorrow, that, 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 do that tomorrow. And that Monday, we went, we did it. I'm telling you, when you determine to give something to God, you better say it out. You better finish it, you know? So they finished it, they determined it, but they finished it, why? Because they were givers, okay? Now let me tell you something. Apostolic distribution, say distribution, is a characteristic of an Antioch church. You know what that means? There's something about the apostolic grace that knows how to distribute funds in the kingdom of God. There's something in the grace, okay? Put up Acts chapter 4 for me. There's a spirit of liberality in Antioch churches, okay? They're not mean miserable, tight, squeak when you walk, churches, short arms, long pockets. That spirit will not prevail in an apostolic arena, in an Antioch church. I'm telling you, it won't prevail because the people, the heart of the people is not that. Now watch this. Look at Acts chapter 4. Let's go from verse 33. Supernatural offerings are common in these churches. And I'll tell you something, we have had them in this church. There are supernatural offerings in the history of this church. We've had them, and we will have them again in Jesus' name. It says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Okay, great grace. Grace for everything. Grace to give. Now look at verse 35. It says, Neither was there any among them that what? Lacked. Okay. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold. Okay? Now look at this. Verse 35, because this is Bible. It says, and led them down at the pastor's feet. Led them down at the prophet's feet. Led them down at the evangelist's feet. Give them to the diagonal. Handed it over to the elders. What does it say? They led them at the apostles' feet. Okay? Government of God. Gift of distribution. It says, and what? Distribution was made unto every man 
according as he had what? Need. Okay? So look at verse 36. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, verse 37, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and let it where? So it was common practice. And he was a Levite. A Levitical priest. Barnabas. But he knew something about apostolic distribution. Okay? Now, God will bless Antioch churches, listen to me, with great resources in order to bless others. Okay? We're blessed to be a blessing. You go out to countries like Malawi and other third world nations that are struggling, and the first thing the enemy will try and hit you with is guilt. Okay? When the first person went to these countries and came home and did silly things, to try and be like those people because they were guilt-ridden. You know what? And the devil tried that tactic with me. I came home in November, early December, first time I ever went there. And Christmas, I didn't enjoy Christmas. Because even as I sat at my Christmas dinner, I'm thinking about these guys. They're sitting down for their usual one meal a day, Sema. And I'm disturbed, you know? And God had to deliver me. And he said to me, you are blessed to be a blessing. If you're not blessed, you can't help anybody. And I thought, Lord, that is a word from God. I remember going into a, a church in London, a black Pentecostal church with a poverty mentality. You know, and uh, if you were uh, a wealthy Christian, you know, you, there's something not right. Where did that mentality ever come from? You know? And what happened was I preached on blessed to be a blessing. And one of their evangelists come up to me who had a poverty mentality after the service and says to me, Brother, you challenge me tonight. I says, Well, you know, praise God, I have to be challenged. He says, No, I'm telling you. He says, You really challenge me tonight. You really challenge me. You know? Because they have to understand that poverty does not necessarily make you holy. You know, it doesn't make you holy. It doesn't make you hungry for God. But the other side of the coin is, you know what? The love of money is the root of all evil. What are we looking for all the time? Extremes are dangerous. Either extremes. Okay? But we put Jesus' name on certain things and it becomes more acceptable to our religious religiosity, our religious tendencies. You know, and I've often said that I didn't even talk about money in this church for the first long time because I was just panicking in case people thought, ah, they're in it for the money. They're in it for the money. And then I realized, wait a minute. If I wanted money, I would have stayed in football. You understand? Cost me money to come to serve God. Huh? Called. Called out of, a, a, out of a, a background with a good salary. You know? So that's the, the reality of it. And then, of course, you're thinking, you know, oh, well, let's not take an offering. You know, the one person that told me, convinced me that I had to take offerings on Sunday nights because we didn't need to take an offering on Sunday night. My father, he came and corrected me. He said to me, why do you not take an offering on a Sunday night? Oh, do you want people to think we're in this for money? He told me, if you don't give God's people an opportunity to give, God can't bless them. Amen. And I thought, how do you answer that? You know, here are rules related to wealth within the apostolic arena. 
We're talking about apostolic uh, marketplace ministries. You know, this is what God's doing in these days because there are 12 rules related to wealth. Okay, here's number one. Let me just give you these quickly. There, there are creators of wealth. People say, I'm called to a marketplace arena. Which one are you called to? Because you need to be able to qualify even that. That's a broad statement. There are creators of wealth. Who are creators of wealth? Entrepreneurs, CEOs, inventors, angel investors. They're creators of wealth. There are inheritors of wealth. Huh? Who are inheritors of wealth? Family, friends, recipients, beneficiaries of wills, estates, life insurance policies, trust funds, and other instruments of wealth transfer. Do you want to be an inheritor of wealth? You want God to reveal your great long-lost uncle Joe, granny, G whatever? There's some stuff lying there that you don't know about and it's yours. Would you like that? Would you like to hear a knock on your door someday? I'm from such and such solicitor's office in High Street, Belfast, and I'm here to tell you I've got a long-lost uncle called Joe. And he's left you a couple of million. Oh, Joe! Joe! Joe's a great fella. Never met him, but he was a great fella. You know? So there are, there are inheritors of wealth. You understand? What else? There are trustees of wealth. Trustees or directors, governing board members of non-profit agencies and organizations, including ministries. They have a wealth-related role. What else? There are connectors of wealth. Listen to this one. Connectors. There are, they are finders, brokers, consultants, investment bankers, fundraisers, intermediaries. Okay? And connectors. Tell your neighbor, get connected. <laughs> there are preservers and guardians of wealth. Okay? What do they do? They're attorneys, CPAs, money managers. Okay? That manage your money. Trust firms, wealth planners, Trusted advisors, estate planners, non-discretionary gatekeepers. Wouldn't it be great when all these things start functioning in the church and whatever little money you have, you take it to one of these wealth planners and they make that, that for you because of their gifting? Can somebody say amen? amen. Would you not like somebody with a good gift and an honest heart to teach you how to grow your money up? The problem is, you know, it's the honest heart bit that we're not sure about. Much have you got in a bank? What's it do with you? Huh? But God has raised up these gifts. He's raised up these abilities in the church. Saved men and women with these abilities that can, that can help you. You know? There's, there's managers of wealth. Venture capitalists. Leverage buyout firms. Money managers, okay, you're going to buy a business. They'll come and have a wee look at it for you and tell you, don't touch it, it's a dead loss. Huh? Or, that's the one. Buy it. Okay? Pension and retirement funds, managers of wealth, you know, endowments, foundations, theorists, strategists, you know, family offices, multi-family offices, asset managers. Have you any assets? You put them in the right hands, they'll become more. You know what happens to some of these big um, stars? They put their wealth and their assets into the hands of somebody and five years later to go get it, it's gone. Huh? Many times, you know? Michael Jackson, where, where did it all go? Billions and billions of dollars. Huh? But God has the right people in the church that want to please God and help the people of God 
to do all these things. There's donors of wealth, okay? Primary giving sources, and including individuals, corporations, and governments. I said to the guys in London, what's it going to be like when corporations start writing checks for the churches? Huh? Instead of pilfering about a few pennies here and there. Imagine getting a corporate check. I'll tell you, it has happened. It has happened. I heard the story not long ago of Pastor Kilpatrick. He came out of Brownsville and he went down to Alabama. He planted a new church, um, the Church of His Presence. And he bought a plot of land in preparation for building the church they're meeting in the, in the Civic Center now. The, 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 the Bay of the Holy Spirit. That's where they meet. And he bought this plot of land for small enough fee. But all of a sudden, what happens? Walmart comes in, likes the land, wants to build a new supermarket, Walmart, and offers them so many million for the land. So he ends up, he gets the land free. Plus what he got extra, it's enough for him now to build a church. And they still left him so many acres of the land. That's God. Yeah, that's God blessing a man of God. Hallelujah. So there's donors of wealth. There's distributors of wealth. This is what we're talking about. Apostolic distribution of wealth. Philanthropic advisors, grant and foundation officers, corporate giving officers, government grant programs. We, we, that's, that's one thing that they don't support here, the church. Government granters wants to see church. Oh, don't touch it. Nobody wants to do anything for the church. But I've said this on behalf of the church. If you take every church charity, every church um, charity that functions in Britain, and you take the money that they put in of their own accord out, Britain's in trouble. The government has to find an awful lot more money than what they're putting in at the minute. You take out the Sally Ann, the churches, the missions projects, the feeding programs, the housing programs. You take all that stuff out. The shelters for one-parent families, all funded by God's people out of the goodness of their hearts. You shut that all down, I'll tell you what, the government's sorry. Okay, we think they're giving us something, giving us 25p now in the pound. <laughs> How many people know governments don't really give, you, give things away? Yeah, there's no free lunches. Huh? There's no free lunches. We just discovered the other day that, you know, university students even have to have a TV license. It's a sin. <laughs> Can you imagine, but, you know, kids going and finding hard enough to pay for their education and the government makes every individual one have their own TV license on campus? Huh? I didn't know that till I looked into that last week or, or just a couple of days ago. Huh? No free lunches. They're giving you it there, but you know what they do? They take it there. Okay? So there's, there's distributors of wealth, what, social service agencies, okay? Charities, mission boards, trustees, religions, churches, denominations, ministries, and paraministries, all distributors of wealth. But you know what we need to do? As well as distribute, we need to learn to create wealth because you can't distribute what you cannot. You know? And then we move down to the recipients of wealth. That's me. That's you, in Jesus' name. We all want to be recipients. It's nice to be a recipient, isn't it? You know, I remember one time I blessed a person. And they were so happy. Woohoo! Praise the Lord! Glory to God! I said, oh, let's bless him again. There's something when people appreciate blessing. 
that makes you want to bless them again. You know, they get so religious and that stuff. Oh, no, you mustn't. Well, then, mustn't. You know, somebody want to bless you, let them. Swallow your pride. I, I often tell a testimony about, about the time when Pastor George was in our life and, you know, we were serving that man of God three years. We were exhausted, you know, did everything. And one lady from the church, one girl from the church, Marty's age, come and says, Marty, you know, um, can you do some, can I do some ironing for you? What for? Well, you know, you're busy with Pastor. Oh, no, it's okay, it's okay, it's all right, it's okay. Thanks anyway, it's all right. You know? So a couple of days pass, you know, Marty has the matchsticks, <laughs> only eyes open, you know, and I say, why did you not let, let her do the ironing for you? Oh, nobody's doing my ironing. Keep the smalls out. You know? Put the shirts, the trousers, whatever. Keep the smalls out. And, and I says to her, but, you know, if, if you're stopping her from being blessed, if God has put that in her heart to offer that to you as a, as a, as a blessing, and you don't let her do it, you're preventing a blessing from the Lord coming to her for service. So she thinks about that, and she says, ah, oh, that's right. So, hello. How you doing, Marty? Here's a, uh, I can put you over a couple of bags of ironing. You know, did, know what you did? And the girl did the ironing nice and neat to the teddy, brought it back. Job done. And I know she got blessed. She got blessed. So we're talking about that. We're moving on to recipients of wealth. You know, those who direct, lead, and administrate local ministries, charities, non-profits, you know. People have wrote us checks because of our work in Africa, because of our work here. We have received wealth. We've received checks. We've received gifts. You know? We're, we are recipients of wealth. Okay? Um, resources. You know, assets into the organization. You know? Um, we, we distribute, uh, as a church, you know, people, churches distribute famine relief. Look at the famine relief that goes out from the people of God all over the world. We are distributors of wealth. Medical supplies. Natural disaster relief. You know many churches in America got on board for Hurricane Katrina and all, that, all those things that were, were, were destroyed. You know many churches went down in there and began working. The government was overwhelmed, couldn't, couldn't handle it. A lot of churches got down in there and distributed their assets and their wealth down to help people. You understand? So, you know, there's construction of orphanages. <laughs> we're distributing wealth. Raising up an orphanage care center for 200 AIDS orphans. Ah, 200 babies that maybe would have no chance. But now they have a wee hope, maybe. We want to bring them through from kids right through to, to training and, and education. And, you know, that's our vision. You know, church buildings, seminaries, Christian schools, Christian camps. That all takes wealth, money. And the church distributes that and training and in preparing people. Then there's the beneficiaries of wealth. <laughs> beneficiaries. Okay, beneficiaries of grants and goods and services. Huh? I went down to see a grant guy one time and he says, would you take a grant? I said, what, what do you mean would I take a grant? He said, but you're the church. We have a lot of church people come in here and they wouldn't take grants. I says, that's up to them. And he's sitting in the desk and I said, did you never read the story about Jehoshaphat? And this is a secular grant guy. He says, what about him? I says, well, he had a great victory. 
and God told him, strip the dead bodies. Take the gold, the silver, they take everything. And it says it took them three whole days. I says, God's not as religious as we are. We wouldn't touch, we'd strip the dead. Oh, that's dreadful. Stripping the dead. That's terrible. That's what religion tells you. You know what God says? Get the job done. Clean them out. Huh? It's no good to them. They're dead. You know, God, we, we need to understand the mindset of God. And they took that wealth and they used it in God's kingdom. We're so religious at times, you know. Who was it, the, the, the guy that formed the Salvation Army? William Booth. He always made the statement, give us your dirty money, we'll wash it. <laughs> That's the first instance of money laundering ever. <laughs> yeah. Would you touch, would you take... Would you take, um, what do you call this? Huh? Camelot's money? Well, where did Camelot get it? Yeah. They got it from the wee guy who instead of giving it to his wife, you know, for food and for bills, decided to buy the, you know, if we can take it back from Camelot and give it back to the wife. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So we're talking about these things and we've got to get real. You know, there's no room for religion. You know? And we're so touchy. So touchy when it comes out. The, oh, don't touch that lottery money. Why? You're not holy. Holy what? You know? The newest testimony of one guy that was involved in racehorses in, in Dublin. He owned um, stables, you know? And uh, he came out of the Catholic Church. He got saved and somebody told him to give it all up. No, he didn't. He gave it all up. Why, why did he not just sell it? You know, and bring the money and give it to the church. What these guys did. You know, you know what I'm saying? We, can, we, we, we need to sanctify wealth. Can we sanctify wealth? Huh? Sanctify wealth. God stripped nations on the behalf of Israel. God stripped Egypt on the behalf of Israel. Huh? Stripped them. They took everything on the way out. I wouldn't touch any of that worldly money. Duh. It's all through the Bible. It's what you do with it that counts. Sanctify it and use it for his glory, his kingdom. You know? You start counting offerings. You start going around every individual that ever comes into a church and puts something in the offering. Says, where'd you get it? Where'd you get that? Is that what we're going to start doing? I'm telling you something. You go into a church and, and some of those guys, you know what, come into your church, they can give offerings. You sanctify it, receive it in good faith. Thank you, Lord. All good gifts come down from God, the Father of lights. Unless God specifically tells you for some reason, don't touch it. Because there was an instance where Abraham would not take from the king, lest the, people, the king should say, I have prospered Abraham. You understand? There may be a, in a situation like that. That's where we need to hear God. So then there's lenders of wealth. Oh, God says we're to be the what? The lender, not the borrower. Lenders of wealth. Who are they? They're the banks, the credit unions, savings and loan, credit cards, loan sharks. Huh? Leasing people, you know, loan sharks. She's on the interest rates they're charging. Loan sharks. They charge you big interest rates. Huh? Somebody says, ah, oh, but he's my wee friend. I says, I'd be your wee friend too if you were paying me that interest. <laughs> I'm serious. And then we have liquidators of wealth. 
bankruptcy judges, credit committees, you know? Break wealth down, break it down, you know? So these are rules related to wealth and apostolic distribution. Huh? Somebody says, I think I'm called to the arena of marketplace uh, money ministry. Well, there you are. Jump in, see where you fit. There's a whole lot of areas there. Okay, let's move on to number eight. Another trait of an Antioch church, prophetic ministry. Okay, say prophetic ministry. Not pathetic ministry. Prophetic ministry. Chapter 11 of Acts and verse 27. Put that verse up. I want you to see this. And in these days came what? Prophets from where? Jerusalem to Antioch. You see, Antioch churches will always respect and receive genuine prophetic ministry. Okay? We're talking about um, being honored and received. Because what does prophetic ministry do in the life of a church? It strengthens and confirms the believer. And it brings revelation and refreshing to the church. Okay? Put up Acts 13 and 1. I want you to see this. Put that one up, Robbie. Acts 13 and 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain what? Prophets and teachers. Okay? The prophets were there. Now I want you to see this verse as well. Put up 1 Corinthians 14 and 29. Because prophets should be part of every local church. Now listen to me. And they should be allowed to speak. Okay? They should be allowed to speak. Let the prophets, you see, let, let, allow the prophets, okay? Allow the prophets to speak, two or three, and let the other judge. You see, oftentimes local church does not have a problem letting the prophets speak, but you try judging the prophets, oftentimes the prophets don't like it. You understand? We've had people in this church who, when they're asked about their word, they left. Okay? Judgment of prophetic comes after the allowing of prophetic. And that's what the Bible teaches us. Now, I said before a couple of weeks ago, there is a breach in the church. There is a breach oftentimes between pastors and prophets. Okay? There's a breach that needs repaired. It needs fixed. There sometimes can be a lack of respect, a lack of trust. Uh, and a lack of um, reception, you know, of prophetic people on the behalf of pastors, you know, because both sides of the coin sometimes have been wrong. There has been controlling pastors that have disallowed the prophetic, but it might be because they allowed it before and they got some flaky stuff that was just nonsense and not genuine prophetic. But there needs to be a healing. We understand that. I understand that. Okay? So prophets should be allowed to speak they should be part of every local church, but they should be accountable. Okay? Accountable. Now, what does the prophetic word do? It releases the plans and the purposes of God. I want you to see this. I read this today and it really blessed me. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. The prophetic word releases the plans and the purposes of God. Okay? Look at it says. It says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. See, Paul couldn't get away from the Gentiles. <laughs> you know, he was bound to them, yoked to them, as it were. 
but because of the call of God. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given, to, given me to you, Ward, or toward you, Paul had a tremendous grace of God in him toward Gentile people. It was a grace functioning in him. Verse 3, it says, How that by revelation he made known unto me, this is Paul, the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words. Okay? So Paul had the mystery made known to him, and he made it known in a few words to the others. Verse 4, Whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. You see, he had it by revelation. And verse 5 says this, Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed. Look at this. Unto what? His holy apostles and what? Prophets by the Spirit. Okay? So, the prophetic word, the prophetic ministry, releases the plans and the purposes of God for individuals, for families, for churches, for cities, for nations, for continents, because God will do nothing except He first, what? Reveal it to the prophets. Okay? Now, so the prophetic has got to be allowed. Okay? It lifts people to new levels. Okay? It activates within Antioch arenas and initiates people into their destinies. We see it all through the book of Acts. Prophecies coming forth over people. Those people were never the same. Something kicked in. You know? What else? As a result of the prophetic ministry, Antioch churches will have believers strong in foundation, revelation, and insights. Okay? It will have them strong. And uh, we did a teaching a while back on the whole mode of the prophetic, the five arenas of the prophetic. You know, if you didn't hear that, you can get that. It's on CD, you know. Prophetic presbytery, prophetic teacher, prophetic office, a gift of prophecy, the spirit of prophecy. Because if you're going to prophesy, you need to know by what mode you're doing it. Okay? And that's where definition comes. Definition, proper definition has to be given to people. You know, so they don't overstep the mark of boundaries or, or, or measures given by the Holy Spirit. All right? Now, so we move on to point nine. Point nine, in Antioch churches, there is always plurality of leadership. Okay? You see these one-man uh, ministry models that have worked before, did for seasons and times? You know what? Not now. All right? There's got to be plurality of leadership. Look at Acts 13 and 1. You see in the Antioch church, there was professionals, there was dignities, there was strong ministry gifts, you know, operating in lay people. They had the whole lot. Look at it says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas. What was Barnabas? He was a Levitical priest. Okay? And Simeon, that was called Niger. He was potentially a black guy. Okay? So there was cultural diversity there in the church, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay? So you see in that simple list that Barnabas was a Levitical priest, Saul was an expert in Judaism, Manaen was brought up in Herod's courts, okay, he was a dignitary, and Simeon was probably black. 
So there was a whole mixture there. There was diversity in that church, you know. And Antioch represents a non-discriminative church regardless of background or color. Diversity is accepted. And the true corporate anointing, I'm telling you, will function in a church where there's no class. One thing I particularly hate in church is snobbery. I hate it with a passion, and I know snobs when I meet them. I know people that make a difference with class. It's not to be tolerated in the church. We are not to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with snobbery, the book of James says. You know, and I remember, how long ago was it, I gathered all our leadership together. Was it, how long ago was it, two, two years ago? Huh? Two years ago? And I asked them this question. It was at one of our leadership gatherings. What was the question I asked you? I says, how would you guys cope as a leadership? These are the questions we ask leaders, we provoke our leaders. I says, how would you guys cope if God brought a lot of middle and upper class so-called people into our church? Corporate people, educated people, doctors, lawyers, solicitors. I says, how would you cope with it? Are you secure enough in yourself as leaders, to give leadership to people like that? I asked that question. Why did I ask that question? I don't know why the Holy Spirit prompted me to ask that question. But leadership in the church, how many people know was different from leadership in the world? And you know what? You may be called to give leadership to some high-powered, successful guys in the world. You understand what I'm saying? But you've got to be secure. Can somebody say amen? amen? If you're intimidated by that stuff, you'll be little or no use to God. You understand? We've got to be secure in our calling. You've got to be secure in who you are, whether you talk with a nice Maloon Road accent or whether you talk with inner city Belfast, Northern You understand? It's not about that. Can somebody say amen? amen. Can somebody say amen? amen? So the church has to have diversity, and it has to represent the whole realm of society. We had a doctor who came to visit us from the States, and he spoke in the church. He was just visiting, and he said that one of the greatest places he'd ever seen the corporate anointing functioning was in a church in some part of America. And he said, where you had consultant pediatricians and plastic surgeons, I know what their job was in the church, to sweep around the outside of the church and make sure the grounds of the church was nice and clean. Why not? Huh? Better men than you have wielded a brush. <laughs> but you understand what I'm talking about? And he says the corporate anointing in that church was just flowing. There was no class distinction. There was no snobbery. There was no sense of elevation, you know? And um, when he came in our church, do you remember what he said? He says, this church reminds me of that same anointing. That's what he said. I didn't say it. He said it. Either he's a liar or he's telling the truth. So we'll take the truth. So we're talking about that, you know? And I'll tell you something. There still is. We, we may not have color barriers in British churches, but there still is class barriers. They're there. Because that's a problem that Britain has. Okay? And some American churches, you know, Marvin, you know what I'm talking about? Some black guys can't go in. 
Some white guys couldn't go in. You know, there are some churches in Britain that some people would not feel comfortable in. But that's the reality. Can somebody say amen? So God needs to help us, okay? Antioch represents non-discriminative church. Regardless of background or color, diversity is accepted. Anointings and gifts are received. People are not held back by insecurities or prejudices. People from every background will be attracted, okay? Every background will be attracted. Now, leaders are developed and raised up in these churches. You know, oftentimes people will come with a call of leadership on their life to Antioch Arenas, and that's where their leadership call will be developed and heightened, and then they be released, because that's the nature of the church. People are also challenged in those churches, and you guys will know about this, to rise up and embrace their calling. You know, I couldn't understand why I had a big problem with people just sitting in the church, just sitting there. You know, now I know why I've got a big problem. Because the nature of God is to challenge people to rise up and step into their calling. That's the nature of God. Can you say amen? So Antioch churches have plurality of leadership. Okay? Now listen to this. Um, because here's, we're trying to get through these tonight. There's a couple more left. Here's another quality of an Antioch church. All right? Now watch this. An Antioch church will always minister to the Lord. They will always minister to the Lord. Can you hear that? Ministering to the Lord and ministering to one another is different. You know? Antioch churches are characterized by a spirit of worship. Okay? And we know that worship's not just slow music. Worship is lifestyle. Your worship of God is seen in your commitment and your giving. It's seen in every area of your life. Your worship is seen in your willingness to obey God. It's seen in your sanctification. It's seen in how you pursue holiness. You know, it's all in there. Your worship of God. What does worship do? What does true, what does a lifestyle of worship do? What does it do? It releases the spirit of prophecy. Okay? Why do you think after bouts of worship, people always have words? It releases the spirit of prophecy. Put up Revelation 19 and verse 10, and you can see quickly what I'm talking about. And fasting and you're ministering to the Lord. What does fasting do? One of the things it does is it, de it develops sensitivity in you to the Lord. When you sanctify yourself for a time of fasting, you're more inclined to hear the Lord more clearly. That's what fasting does. It says, look, and I fell at his feet to worship him. See, there's no mention of a slow song there. He fell at his feet in prostration to worship him. Fell at his feet, okay? Some people wouldn't fall at Jesus' feet. They wouldn't know how. You know, they don't know how. They don't understand the concept of worship. You know one of the things that helps you to worship? A true understanding of what the Lord has saved you from and where he's brought you from. I'm serious. You see the greatest heathens? They usually become the greatest worshipers. I'm serious. Now watch this. And he said unto me, see, so what did worship do? It released a word. He began to worship, and then instantly he said unto me. You see that? And he goes on to talk about how Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. When you worship Jesus, guess what he's going to do? He's going to say unto you. Worship releases the spirit of prophecy, either privately or corporately in the church. And Antioch churches will always be characterized by a spirit of worship. 
And I'm not talking about, you know, let's sing a hymn, let's sing verses 1, 3, and 5. The hymn writer didn't write verse 1, 3, and 5. They wrote 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. You ever been in those places? Let's sing 2 and 4. Let's sing it again. Jesus, Lord, have mercy. That used to be a pet hate of mine as a young Christian. I used to say, you know, that guy spent all that time writing verses 1 through 5. If he only had wanted 1, 3, and 5, he'd have left 2 and 4 out. And usually by leaving out those, they're missing some great truths. But for the sake of time, let's sing 1, 3, and 5. What time? Where are you going? Why are you going home? Newsnight? Newsnight won't feed your soul. But that second and fourth verse, mate. <laughs> Churches that minister and fast to the Lord will be part of birthing new ministries. New ministries will be birthed in those arenas. Why? Because Barnabas and Saul were released to a new level of ministry after prayer and fasting. They were released to apostolic realms. Okay? Part of ministering to the Lord is waiting upon him. This is important in Antioch churches. Why? Because waiting on God's direction is their passion. What else? Antioch churches cherish the word of the Lord. Okay? Won't move until God speaks. Won't move until they feel a release in their spirit. But to have that, you've got to minister to the Lord, you know? And um, praise God for it. And you, and you know, uh, there's another thing, Antioch churches, you know, oftentimes there won't even be words in the worship. We have had bouts of worship where it's just been... And Stephen gets up there and he says, okay, let's give us a clap for the Lord. You know, and you're making music unto the Lord. You're worshiping. Your spirit's thriving. And then the wee fella gets on the, the drums. You know, where are they? And he gets the thing going and he starts, you know. We're going. Bum, 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 bum. You know, it's worship. You know, somebody says, we had a person in here one time. Somebody shouldn't play drums in the church. What for? Drums are used in. Africa. What for? For worshipping demons. As if the drum knows. <laughs> oh, he's hitting me because I'm worshipping a demon. Da, 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 da. No, the drum doesn't know. It's the heart behind the drum. You can worship whatever you want according to your heart inclination. But we know when we hit a drum, we're not celebrating no demon. We're celebrating Jesus. Yeah. Hallelujah, Lord! Yeah. Huh? So, we you don't... Know, <laughs> hallelujah. Okay, so, you know, worship. Worship is to be found in our church. Would we worship the way a lot of churches worship? Probably not. <laughs> Well, I didn't want to say that. I didn't say it. <laughs> and you know there's different styles of worship. Let's tidy that up. <laughs> there's different styles of worship. We understand that. But you know what? I like it loud. I like it raw. That's just me. Ah! You know, I like it like a, you know, like a warrior. 
type thing, you know. And sometimes I'm learning to rock, you know. So, <laughs> the worship is going on and the guys are playing away. And oftentimes I find myself there just... But I'm downloading. I'm listening to the Lord. You know, we download while we worship. Sometimes I've got some great sermons downloading and worship. God has even just spoke one word, and that has been the word that's guided the whole service. Huh? So we're free, you know. So, you know, we see everybody next week. Yeah? They're strange down there. Yeah, well, we're strange. We'll take that. Huh? But we'll worship the Lord. Yeah? We worship the Lord. We worship God. There were some strange manifestations in the Bible. Do you believe the Bible? See, when you read it, <laughs> some, some, some weirdos in there. I tell you. Yeah? One guy laying aside for months. <laughs> yeah? Another guy started eating animal droppings. Huh? All, all by the Spirit. God wouldn't tell you to do that. <laughs> he did. Huh? One guy takes off and does a sprint over 40 days. Under the anointing. Huh? Elijah, he ran for 40 days. Could you run for 40 days? You couldn't run four feet. Okay, now watch this, because here's where I want to share about something that I think was key to our transition. Prayer and fasting will be evident in Antioch Arenas. And I was just talking to Stephen today, and I was saying that for the last six years, God has led our church, okay, to fast the month of January every year, okay, to start the year off, because we bring the word for the year. And for those first lot of weeks, that kicks there. That's bringing faith to the hearts of the people to believe and to build them and to receive for what God wants to do that year. So prayer and fasting is evident in Antioch churches. What do you see? Acts 13 and 3, please. Robert, if you just stick it up. We're nearly, we're nearly coming to the end. Acts 13 and 3. It says, and when, it didn't say if, it said, and when they had what? Fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Okay? So fasting and prayer was an expectation in apostolic arenas. It wasn't an afterthought. It was something that was prominent and evident. Prayer is the power source of the apostolic because the apostles declared by their own words, we will give ourselves to the word of God and to prayer. Those are the two main priorities in apostolic ministry, the word of God and prayer. Okay? Because if you don't have those two things right, the church will die. People will die. The vision will close. You've got to keep making sure that the word's there and the prayer's there. I was so glad when Marty came and told me that the guys on Saturday found themselves interceding for the new building. Marty says I, she came home with whiplash. <laughs> the intercession was so strong. I've experienced that. I've, it's more than one time I've had whiplash through intercession. That's why sometimes, you know, we've got to understand intercession can be painful. And even in your body. You know why? You're standing in a gap. For something. That's where God takes your body and uses it prophetically. I'm telling you. So, fasting's part of apostolic ministry. How do we know that? Put up 2 Corinthians 11:27, just quickly, Robert. And then I'm going to tell you about the incident that I feel was vital to, to this church. And it was God-led. 
See if fasting is not God-led? It's dry, it's boring, it's dull, it's laborious, it's, it's, it's legalistic. It's got to be God-led. And weariness, look at this, and painfulness, this is Paul writing, and watchings often, and hunger and thirst, and what often? And fastings often. So it's part of the apostolic ministry. Now, prayer and fasting releases the apostolic anointing. In 2007, the word for our year, that particular year, was the year of divine possibilities. Okay? Something was happening in the atmosphere of the church that whole year. We preached on divine possibilities. Divine possibilities. You never know what God can do. God can do anything. But if your faith is up at the appropriate level, it's possible that you never know what the Lord can do, what He wants to do. And so early that year, I got a direction from God. And what happened was we fasted the month of January, corporately as the church. Is fasting easy? No. Is it meant to be? No. You know, you're denying the flesh. You're hung, your stomach's saying, fill me, fill me, fill me. And you're saying, no, no, no. You know, and I know people fast a lot of things. You know, it was a big, a big thing in these days about, well, let's fast my Coca-Cola. Let's fast my television. Let's fast this and fast that. I don't read any of them things in the Bible. We'll fast food. I don't mean fast food. We fast food. Okay, now God will honor that other stuff. Trust me, he will honor it, you know. But mainly the Bible teaches us food. It's food, okay? The Bible says Paul fasted having eaten, having taken nothing. I remember one day a guy came to interview me at the house. He, was, uh, he worked for the Telegraph and it was a football interview. And he come in and he says, oh. I says, do you want a cup of tea? He says, no, I'm fasting, fasting this week, Glenn. The whole church is fasting. I says, oh, praise God. He says, all I've had this morning was toast and banana. And <laughs> what? what are you talking about? And then says, is that Daniel fast? Okay, I don't know, you know. But anyway, there we go. Where was it? Yes. No, so what happened was um, we fasted the month of January. And then God, I was working at the computer one day. And the Lord began to direct me. He began to talk about, I'm going to require more this year in terms of fasting. I said, oh, just praying, meditating. And I felt like God was saying to me, I want you to fast one day, February. Who remembers this? Two days, March, three, April, four, May, five, June, six, July, seven, August, eight days, September, nine days, October, ten days, November, eleven days, December. And I thought, December? Yeah, we started on two. Two days, February, three days, that was what it was. And I said, December? Christmas dinner and all. You know, 12 days in December, Lord. I go to a lot of pastors' lunches in December. You know, that's one of my favorite times of the year because I like eating. I know you wouldn't know it. Like, but, but, so, what, so what happened was we, we said, okay, Lord, show me, Lord, this is you. Because if I begin to pursue this and this isn't you, this is going to bore me to tears. I'm just legalistic. So I begin to count up. Any mathematicians? Two plus three is five, plus four is nine, 
plus 5 is 14, blah, blah, blah. And by the time I got to 12, it was 77. 77 days. So I said, okay, let's have a look at this. It goes in biblical numerology. What does 77 mean? One of the meanings of 77, God's double seal of approval. I nearly fell off the computer. Still, this is God. I said, Lord, show me. 77, God's double seal of approval. So we begin to venture on the 77-day fast. We did the two days in February after January. We did the three days in March. It was good. It was okay at the start. But you start to get up into those seven, eight, nine, ten days. And I'll tell you, it gets more difficult. But we did it. And we seen it out. Do you know what? November of that year, we were released to go to Malawi. See, God moved us into another apostolic arena. And 2007 is the year that I be believe that God first began to speak to us about transitioning over and going. And now, through this articulation and this understanding and hindsight, I know God was using that to transition us from Jerusalem model to Antioch model. And that's high key that those 77 days of fasting were that year for the life of this church. I know that from that time we have not been the same and we have not remained the same. So when the Bible talks about prayer and fasting being keys for certain things, church, it is. It is. You know, but you've got to let God lead you. You know, Somebody now can hear this and say, oh, I'm going to do 77 days now. Did God tell you that? Did he speak that to you? Did he tell you that's how he wanted you to do it? With us, it was the case, you know. And that's when our transition really began. And we haven't looked back, you know. We haven't looked back. Now, God may call us in the future for more corporate fasting as a church to do that. And I would encourage you, get on board. Fasting doesn't change God. You know what? It changes you. And that's what it's designed to do. Sent ones are dependent upon the sender. And what fasting does is it's an expression of our total dependence upon God. You know, I have seen God lead me into times of fasting for souls. I can give you another example. There's two of them sitting here tonight and they haven't left here yet. You know, they're glued there. And um, you remember that? One December, the Lord said to me, I want you fast two days. I have two souls to come in. And I thought, well, okay, we'll do two days. And that was the December I was ordained. And he was working with him. And he didn't even like him. <laughs> All right? Because he thought he got into his firm through the back door. And he didn't like that. And so they're working together. He's saved. He's not. They don't like each other. Well, you, you loved him, but he didn't like you. Of course. And what happened was, Stephen's leaving work on the Friday and happens to say, oh, I'm going to an ordination service on Sunday night. My pastor's being ordained. He says, who's your pastor? He says, oh, Glenn Dunlop. And he goes, Glenn Dunlop, place for Crusaders? Yes, I'm a Crusaders supporter. Where's that, Where's that happening? I'm going to go up to that. You see, God's working. Chess pieces. Eh? And God might have got him in the back door. <laughs> for your wee soul. <laughs> so what happened was, you know, he sets off in his merry way from ours that night, a good heathen. 
Huh? Broke, busted, and disgusted. <laughs> and he's coming up the Ravenhill Road, not knowing where my lady's, my lady's road is. And this car comes up, up behind you, panicking, flashing lights. So he turns off the road to get out of the way, turns into my lady's road. Coincidentally. Huh? Accidentally, that was one of God's chariots behind you, son. So he pulls in at my lady's road, not knowing where the church is. The, uh, here's all this, uh, the, some of that worship. He says, that must be it in there. He has the wee one by the hand. Wee Haley Jane. How old was she then? Two. You know, some sinners bring their kids to church to hide behind them. Do you ever see that? And they put the kid up in the knee and do, 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 right there, so that they don't have to listen to the preacher. So he comes in. There's one seat in the whole place left. Where is it? Second row. Front row, where was it? Did it down a bit? And so they bring him in, they put him right there. He's right within touching distance. And the wee one's there. And so they start the ordination service. You see? Place was packed, wasn't it? And um, I'm on my knees. These pastors and leaders around me ordaining me. I look over. He's on his knees. I says to myself, Lord, can I not even get ordained in peace? You know, there's always just one. Just quiet ordination. And the next thing, one of the ministers is saying to him, do you want to get saved, son? Or what was it, something like that? Or, and he said, yes, I want to get saved. And they lead him to the Lord on his knees beside me while I'm getting ordained. And I'd fasted two days. What date was this? 12th? 3rd of December? I'd fasted two days at the start. And so what happened was, I gets up off the ordination. The minister says to me, son, you're going to produce fruit for God. I says, what do you mean? He says, God has sealed your ordination with a soul. And I thought, oh, that's, that's nice. <laughs> and do you remember the night you were ordained? God saved the soul. Same thing, he done the same thing. And so what happened was, so many days went right through to the 31st of December, New Year's Eve. She was a hard case. Had you, had you been to church a couple of times? Had she been? She wouldn't come, stubborn mule. And anyway, <laughs> so I sort of came to the conclusion, Lord, I must have not heard you right. You know, maybe it was only just one soul. But I was convinced two days, two souls. And I thought, maybe it didn't, maybe it didn't hear you. And so what happened was, I'm in the kitchen of the old church. Was it just on the bell? Just on the, dun, like two minutes to midnight or something? What happened? Somebody comes in, ah, oh, Debbie's got saved. Dom's wife, Debbie's got saved. And just quickly, I heard God saying, second soul. But it was right on the dong of the, dong. You know, like of the, close to the New Year's Eve. And that was the two souls through fasting. I'm telling you something, God has brought me financial breakthroughs through fasting. I'm telling you, he's brought me breakthroughs in fasting as he has led. So if God speaks to you about fasting, you know what? Practice it. It's good, you know? So in, in Antioch arenas, fasting is, is, is there. They're a platform on which strong ministries are built. Leaders are released through prayer and fasting and elders are ordained. Much of the ability in Antioch churches comes through prayer and fasting. Okay? Now here's the last one. We'll finish with this one tonight. Number 12. 
12 characteristics of Antioch churches. The 12th and the last one is this. We've just had the verse, Acts 13 and 3. They prayed for them, fasted for them. They sent them. Antioch churches are sending churches. Okay? They're sending churches. What does that mean? Antioch churches revolve around the concept of sending and being sent. They become a base. We said it briefly on Sunday. You know what? You may find God bringing a lot of ministers here, okay, as a base. And they go out from here and function and do what they do. But then God brings them back here. And they come back to this base. And this is where they get their input, their nurture, and their blessing. Then they take it out. And then they come back. And then they take it out. And then they come back. It's a sending center. A church success should not be measured solely by how many people come in, but also by how many people go out. That's a true apostolic center, a true apostolic church. Now, let me tell you something. God sends. Jesus sends. The Holy Spirit sends. Sending is part of the Godhead strategy. God sent His only begotten Son. You know, God's a sender. Sender. And it's part of the Godhead strategy. Antioch churches have the ability to reach beyond their locality. Okay? They reach beyond their locality. Those sent operate in the same authority, listen to me, as the senders. You know that? Even in the concept of church, we are sent from the Lord. Okay? He gives us His delegated authority. If you are sent from here, you have the same authority that resides here. So you need to understand that. Okay? And those sent operate in the same authority as the senders. Leaders are raised and released, and new ones are raised to replace them. There is continual reproduction. Okay? That's a sending church. Recycling. Okay? And sending and recycling and sending. And in the Antioch church... Um, it is a revised model to expand the kingdom of God. That's the Antioch model. Can you understand why so many people would find that difficult, all that stuff? Because for years and years and years, church has been presented to us under this model, Jerusalem model. Now, there's strong points in it. There's good things about it. But ideally, God wants us as he did that church to transition from there to there. Church, I have no doubt in my mind that this transition has taken place in this church. Amen. I have no doubt in my mind that we are an apostolic people. Okay? Functioning in an apostolic arena. I believe it's going to grow. I believe it's going to become more intense. I believe it's going to become more dynamic. I believe it's going to become much more influential. I believe the resources are going to come in. I believe the gifts and the abilities are here. It even reminds me about one time when I was praying for God to do this, do that, and send in this, and do this, and do that. And God said, they're already there. And I would advise any pastor, any minister in ministry, from my short experience, that sometimes the answer that they're looking for, it's there already. It's already there. You know, we're praying so often about God sending, sending. All it needs is identified, defined, and activated. And it's there already. You know, so think about that. Let's stand tonight.